Uh, I really don't like uh, decisions in life that tend to be like really binary decisions. Like um, I struggle, you know, it's obviously a political season right now and I struggle with this like, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat and these kind of two systems. Uh, but even beyond that, I don't like when I'm like presented with a decision. Like if you're like, hey, what do you want for dessert? Like we have cake or pie and I'm like tiny slices of both. Like I don't, I don't want one or the other. I want a, a little of each. Um, I, I don't like when I'm kind of forced uh, to make these decisions that are one or another. Um, but today in this passage, we're really going to see Jesus present um, what is probably the most crucial, uh, really binary question of all. And that is like, where do these people in the book of Mark, and therefore where do we stand when it comes to Jesus? What Jesus is going to present is this view of the world in which there are those who have found life in Christ, who are with him, who are following him, who are connected to his mission, and then those who are apart from God and therefore opposed to God because they're not aligned with Jesus. And, and I think like even if you uh, don't struggle with kind of black and white binary decisions, uh, that presentation of this part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is really difficult for us. Because we want to allow for some, um, some form of like, well, what about people that are half in or, or half out or people that are exploring? But, but for us, as we read what Mark presents here, there really are two groups. There are those who are disciples of Christ, who are following Jesus, who are preaching the good news, the message that he came to proclaim of repentance from sin, of drawing near to him because the kingdom of God in Christ has come near to us. And then there are those working in the book of Mark directly against that mission. And so that, uh, the rest of the chapter, uh, chapter three of Mark today, uh, verse seven. Jesus departed with his disciples and for the sea, to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The cr large crowd came to him because they had heard everything that he was doing. Then he just told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he'd healed many who all had diseases, all who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And then he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Okay, so this is kind of setting uh, the scene uh, or giving us the setting um, for which the rest of chapter three will play out. Really a, a few of the next chapters will play out in this region. And we can see that the main thing that Mark wants to communicate is that the fame of Jesus, uh, the popularity of him as a healer and a miracle worker is growing exponentially, right? So now we have uh, crowds of people from many different areas. There's this kind of this great movement of people and they're not coming as Mark wants us to see. He says they're not coming to hear him teach. They're coming to be healed by him. Uh, the, the Mark is presenting to us this character in his gospel of these crowds of people. And two things are true. One, they don't recognize who Jesus really is. They don't recognize him as the son of God. They don't recognize him as the divine. They recognize him instead as a, as a healer, as a teacher with authority. And they're flocking around him second, not to hear his teaching or his preaching or his message, but the majority of them are flocking to Jesus to be healed. And just look at this scene here uh, that's set for us at the beginning of the chapter. It says that the crowd was so large that Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I need you to get a small boat because I'm going to go out by the sea, which again is this 
uh, move in Mark of Jesus removing himself um, from the populous areas and going into the outskirts with these crowds following him. He says, give me a small boat so I can get out on the water because I'm worried that these people are going to crush me, right? I'm a pretty popular guy. Um, and occasionally I see someone I know at the store. Never have I seen a crowd of people willing to crush me. You ever seen these videos of like what it looks like when like Bono's somewhere? I remember seeing videos um, of Michael Jackson when he would like go out to shop and he would be at a mall and it would literally just be terrifying, right? The sheer number of people and fans that would, would circle around him so much so that these people, uh, these kind of, not just judges, celebrities, but these huge, huge names need to have people that will encircle them literally to keep people back because people are such in a frenzy about who this person is and wanting to get near them that it's a danger to their lives, right? This is the picture that Mark presents of Jesus's fame. Uh, that Jesus was not just a, a flash in the pan. He wasn't just a teacher that a couple people came to hear. Jesus was the kind of guy that when he came to town, everyone came out to see, to hear, to get near him, and then they went wherever he went after that. That we will see growing and growing crowds of people following Jesus, trying to get near him. And it says here that not only are they trying to get near him, you have this picture of just many, many people with different diseases and ailments who are reaching out and trying to physically get their hands on Jesus. Because they believe, they have seen, they have heard the power that Jesus has to heal. And they believe that if they can just get a hand on him, touch him, that they'll be healed in some way. Now, the healings of Jesus are obviously an overwhelmingly positive thing. It's a way that uh, Jesus showed his authority over the physical world. It's a way that he uh, confirmed to people the power that he had, his uh, being sent from God. But the way that people seeking out his... Because it's logical that people want to be healed. But what Mark presents to us is this idea that the crowds of people who are seeking Jesus out are not seeking him out that they might know him, hear from him, and join with him. They're seeking him out in a really transactional way to receive something from him. And so all the while, while these people are pressing in, we have this other force of opposition that keeps coming up, and it comes up here again that there are demons coming to attack Jesus, to try and call him out for who he is, to try and exert their power over Christ. And we see Christ just every time shutting down these evil spirits, uh, making them unable to speak his name, unable to try and make him known that they might lord over him, this power of knowing who he is. Instead, he silences him, and there's this undercurrent of where the crowd doesn't know who this Christ is, but these demons do. That they know who he is. They know he's the son of God and the others don't yet recognize this. Jesus' fame has grown. It's earth shaking. It's massive. And yet he pulls away to be with his 12 disciples in verse 13. Says Jesus went up to the mountain and he summoned those that he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Bonerages, and then to. to uh, Andrew, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Ephias, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would eventually betray him. 
Uh, so we're in this scene here. We're up on a mountaintop. Um, anytime in scripture that you see people go to a mountain, you need to key in that something important is about to happen. Uh, mountains were seen uh, as a place of revelation from God. Mountains are significant places all throughout scripture. They are places uh, where people connect with God, places where people were away from God. I'm not saying this, please don't all like move to Colorado. I'm not saying this was necessarily like correct in thinking, but there is uh, a theme in the narrative of scripture that often God's calls people up to high places to the mountains in order to speak with them and especially in order to commission them. And so uh, they go up on a mountaintop and as the reader, you're like, oh man, something here is about to happen. I know that in scripture, this is a thing. Literally for people in the ancient Near East, they thought of being up high as being literally closer to God because of the way that they understood uh, the way that the universe was built. Um, We know, you know, earth is round, Hopefully that's not an incendiary statement here. Um, It's round. We've seen it from space. We went to the moon. There, I've offended one of you, and now I'm scared. But you're probably passionate, right? (laughs) It's daylight savings day. Give me a break, okay? So he calls them up to this mountaintop, and then we see something happen here. Um, he gives them new names. Now, this is a really significant thing in Scripture. It doesn't seem like he renames everyone. Um, we know that there are other people in here who also kind of have redefined names, but there are a few who get called out, and they're people who end up having a significant uh, uh, ministry in Jesus' ministry. Um, we know uh, Peter is going to be a really significant character. He's going to be that one who later uh, Jesus says, like, I'm, I'm going to build my church through you. You're going to be a key uh, feature in what I'm doing. He, he has these sons of thunder here who will become uh, some of Jesus' closest disciples who uh, seem to have something just kind of boisterous and, and loud about them. But the significance of this renaming is that he really is calling the disciples, all of them in this moment, to this new purpose in their lives. And often when uh, God would call someone in this way, he would change their name. Uh, we see this with Abram, who becomes Abraham. We see this uh, with women in the Bible. We see it also in, uh, uh, in negative parts of the Bible where we see um, Naomi me, say, hey, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara now because I'm bitter in the book of Ruth that we just went through. Name changes are significant markers um, in the purposing and definition of someone's life in the biblical narrative. And so he changes a few of their names, and this is all pointing to this is a really important moment, both in the book of Mark and the lives of these men and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, He commissions these disciples. He says, look, you're going to be my disciples, um, also apostles, meaning you're going to be those who carry out authority. You're going to work on my behalf. And then he commissions them in this way. You notice there's four things he says. Um, They're going to be with him. They're going to be sent out. They're going to preach. And they're going to have authority to drive out demons. Four things he calls them to. He says, you're going to be near me. You're going to be sent. You're going to preach. And you're going to have the authority to drive out demons. Uh, He says, you're going to be with me. You're going to go out and proclaim. Now, Jesus chooses these 12 men for this specific purpose. So this is what William Lane says. He says, Jesus chose these 12 men for the specific purpose that they might be with him and that he might extend his mission through them. That they might be with him and he might extend his mission through them. And so first he tells the disciples, you're going to be near me. You're going to be with me. Uh, probably the most simple call of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus was that they were going to be near Jesus. 
that they were going to be close to him. They were going to be hearing his teaching. They were going to be close enough to hear his, his physical voice. They were going to be able to observe his ways, not just in his public ministry, but in his private ministry. The way that he prayed, the way that he retreated, the way that he was when he felt sad, the way that he was when he was uh, belabored and, and tired, his power in beautiful private moments, healings, miracles. They would be witness to all these things. But commentators as a whole make an interesting point that, that when he says you're going to be near me and then he says you're going to be sent, that these aren't really two different things. That, that for Jesus to be near him implied that you were on the same mission as Jesus. That you couldn't be near who Jesus was and not be on the same mission that Jesus was called to. To be near to him, to learn from him, was to logically be sent out that other might, people might hear about who he was. So the disciples weren't called to just hunker down with Jesus and hang out and uh, you know just have a good time as a small cohort. Instead, this nearness, this closeness to Jesus was to shape them that they might go out and represent him all over the world. He would initially send them out um, into the immediate context, but the implication would be and his words would be that they would continue to go out into the nether regions that people might hear of who Jesus was everywhere. Now, what are they sent out to do? He says, you are sent out to preach. Now, this word is a word that we use a lot here because this is the same word in scripture that means proclaim. Um, I'm not sure if I put this on the screen or not, but our mission statement here at River City is to glorify God through proclaiming the gospel to our city and ourselves. To glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Christ, the euangelion, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done to proclaim it to ourselves and to proclaim it to our city. Now, we define city pretty broadly. That city is the, the context, the friends, the family, the co-workers, the fellow students that God has placed wherever you are. That that's, a, that's a big area, your city. Now, practically, we, most of us live in the Grand Rapids metro, and so this place is unique to us that we think God has specifically sent us to be proclaimers of the gospel. Our nearness to Jesus Christ, our drawing near to Jesus, inspires us that we have this mission not just to do good deeds, not just a, a message of self-care or self-help, but a message of a king that we follow and a message of repentance from our sin and forgiveness found only in the Son of God, Jesus. We, as disciples of Christ, are sent in the same way that these disciples were sent to make who Jesus is known to the world. Not, not only that, we're to be a force for good in the world. He calls them to go out, to be sent, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to preach, but he also calls them to be fighting against the evil in the world. He says, you're going to have authority from me to drive out demons. And they've seen this authority play out in the life of Jesus. They have seen that he is over evil forces in the world. They've seen him drive out demons. And we will see this in the rest of the book of Mark, as well as throughout all of the gospels in the book of Acts, that the disciples and the apostles had the power of God to drive back forces of evil in the world. As we go out to proclaim the gospel, we bring with us the authority of God over evil in the world as well. We are for good. We are for justice. We want to see a picture of the world that is beyond what we see at face value. And this is one of those areas that what you believe about Jesus drastically informs what your worldview is. 
That when we look at the world around us, what we think is valuable, what we think brings real healing, what we think motivates people, um, what we think is actually the problem in the world is informed by our understanding of what the scripture and what God himself has revealed about the world. And what God has revealed is that the battle in our world is not just a battle of what we see in front of us, but there is a spiritual element uh, to what is going on in this world. That, that clearly in scripture, there is an element of the devil, uh, the one who is against God and his forces, these demons, these fallen angels who in this world are acting for evil. Now, now we can get uh, too in the weeds with this. We can make it into things that it's not. This can inspire us either to fear or to being uh, blinded to the actual problems in front of us. But it is important that we see that in this world, there is something beyond what we see with our eyes. We need to remember this not only so that we don't see the problems in the world as merely physical problems, but we also need to see this so that we don't see the solutions to what will solve the problems of our world as merely practical either. I mean, look at the world around you just in this past week and think about the depth to which our world is broken and filled with sin. Uh, think about, you know, just, just the mess uh, of panic and worry over the coronavirus stuff right now. It's all you see when you look online. I mean, literally, like, uh, I was on Twitter this week and reading, like, pastors in, in Washington and in Florida trying to decide, like, hey, what does it look like for us to either meet or not meet right now as a church? Um, saw that, like, the NBA sent a memo out um, to all of uh, the owners of teams saying, hey, you need to prepare your teams for what it might look like to play without fans in the stands. Which is funny, LeBron James is like, not doing it, right? He's like, I'm not playing with nobody there. That's weird. That would be weird. Kind of feel like daylight savings weekend, right? You know? <laughs> I am not LeBron James. We're going we're gonna to edit that. Um, so it's a weird illustration. Okay? You look at the world around you, and, and there is clearly brokenness. And we have a choice to make about the way we think about the world around us. Will we be prone to panic or will we be predisposed towards peace? That doesn't mean we don't take things seriously. That doesn't mean we don't take precautions and want to be safe. That doesn't mean we don't address the, the things in front of us in the world, the starvation and hunger and racism head on. But we see the symptoms, those as symptoms of the sin and the evil forces at work in our world. And we answer that with, yes, physical help and action as we try and push back against the effect of sin. But ultimately, what we are called to do is preach the good news of Jesus that we might have hope even when evil still reigns reigns in this world. That Jesus, the Son of God, is manifested, is actually standing there before them in the world, and yet there is still sickness and disease and evil confronting him. Because we believe that this world will be uh, cursed with those things, will be beset with a multitude of struggles in the spiritual and physical realm because of sin until the day when Jesus returns and his kingdom, his rule, his reign that we are looking forward to in Mark is fully established and he throws over all this sin. When we are with Jesus and he makes the heavens and the earth new again. There's a spiritual 
battle. And we're called to see the way that Jesus confronts that, the authority that he gives to his disciples to push back against the evil and opposition that they will naturally have as followers of Christ sent out to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is. Verse 20. So as Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not able even to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Now, we're going to have an interesting thing here happen in Mark. Uh, uh, it's kind of ironic that it's called this, but sometimes people call it like a, a, a Marcane sandwich, which is weird because it's talking about Jesus not eating here. So I think that's funny. But this is the first one we see where, where Mark is going to start a story, and he's going to interrupt that story with another story that doesn't seem related in the moment, but it truly is related to what's going on, and then he'll finish the story. So this is the start of the story. The, the Jesus' family is around, and we're not sure which members of his family, but we know um, at least some of his mother's and brothers are there by what we'll see at the end of chapter three. And they hear about Jesus's work. They see what's going on in all of this crowd and they kind of see Jesus' demeanor and attitude. Uh, and I think what they're seeing here, most commentators uh, agree, is they're seeing his, his resolve and his dr drive towards the mission. They're not actually concerned with the fact that Jesus hasn't stopped for dinner, okay? That's not, they're not just like, he's not eating, he's crazy, right? Which maybe he was hangry, I don't know. Like, I don't think that's what scripture is trying to say say here is that it's just that he hadn't eaten and he was upset or crazed in some way. Instead, that they're seeing his drive towards his mission and they, they just don't understand it. They don't get why he's so driven in this way and they think he, he's in some way out of his mind or he's not right. Um, it's no accident in Mark that, that right after we see the disciples of Jesus called, we see two forms of opposition instantly pop up. And the first is his family. That he's challenged by his family, and we see, uh, and I think are meant to feel some, some tension in that moment. That, that even for Jesus, his earthly family is not unimportant. That they are close, and I think that there's implied pain here that they don't see what he's doing, and they're not fully in on his mission and his message. Now, the next, though, not just family opposition, what, what Mark interrupts this with, and this is part of the connection for us, is that not only is he feeling some opposition in his family and some personal opposition, there's this great institutional opposition that's mounting. Verse 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, this is a pretty significant moment in the book of Mark uh, for a few reasons. Uh, this is the first time that we see um, the kind of movement against Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees go um, from just a local movement to see we see like the special forces coming in, okay? So it says that the scribes, they'd come down from Jerusalem. And so this means these are like the scribes, scribes, right? Like these are like, this is like the professional governance coming out and they have heard what's going on with Jesus. They've heard of his growing fame. They've heard of his teaching with 
with authority that directly challenges their authority as teachers, and now they're going to get involved. And so they come down, and they make this accusation against Jesus. They say, this Jesus, he, he's possessed by uh, Beelzebul. Um, often in Scripture, this is interchangeable with Beelzebub. Um, it's going to be a, a definition of either calling him Satan himself or calling him like a prince over the demons, uh, saying, you're the one who's in charge of the evil world. Um, this, is a, this is a big accusation, right? This is a transitional moment uh, for how these scribes and Pharisees are interacting with Jesus. Mark wants us to see this directly flowing out of Jesus' claim in the last chapter that he could offer forgiveness for sin. That this is what has incited things to go from just observing and maybe trying to ask Jesus some questions to a full-on opposition and now a really harsh accusation against Jesus. So they call him the devil, using the power of Satan, but he's also Satan. So for the first time now, Jesus is going to speak in what he calls parables. Um, parables are simply um, stories that are supposed to go alongside a great, greater teaching. Jesus is going to often speak in story and utilize this form of parable um, as an illustrative form of teaching to draw pictures uh, of either what someone else is saying so that he can speak against it or to illustrate what he's saying. We'll see more of these coming up um, in particular next week. So he says uh, he, he's going to use these parables to try and dissolve what uh, the accusations are that being made. So the first accusation being you are Satan, the prince of a demon. Second, you are possessed in using the power of Satan. So Jesus' response first is this. It's pretty simple. He says, if I'm Satan and I'm driving out the forces of Satan through my power, then the kingdom of Satan is dissolving. Now, the reason this is a crucial argument is that the Pharisees and scribes know that's not true. They know that the power of the devil, the power of evil, the power of demons, they know it is active and thriving in the world. Like they can see it around them. They are, they are fully understanding the control of Satan. They're, they're not shaken in whether or not they believe there's a God and there's a real force for evil in the devil. They believe this and they see that the world is still not right. So they know that the kingdom of Satan hasn't dissolved yet. And so Jesus' first argument is, if I'm Satan, and as Satan, I'm fighting against the forces of Satan, then there is a rift in the kingdom, and my kingdom has dissolved. And so everything should be right again. They know this isn't true. Uh, second, he says, if I'm controlled by a demon, if a demon is stronger than me, then how can you accuse me uh, of being uh, uh, able to overthrow demons when, I, when I'm controlled by one? He's saying, this is ridiculous. And so he uses the strong man argument saying, hey, you can't break into the home of a strong man and overthrow him if that strong man is stronger than you. It's impossible. I'm not robbing Dwayne the Rock Johnson, okay? It's just not happening. I'm not gonna break in and be like, I tied you up, Dwayne, and take all his stuff, right? This is not happening. He would murder me, okay? Right? He's saying, this is an absurd argument to say that, that I have overthrown something stronger than me in order uh, to be then controlled by that same Thing. So he dissolves the arguments of the Pharisees in this moment. And then he makes what is really one of the stronger statements in the entire Bible in verse 28. He says, truly I tell you, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. He did this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never 
has forgiveness. That's a strong statement. Now, what is blasphemy? Again, uh, we'll go to William Lane, who's helpful on this. Blasphemy, uh, Lane defines it as the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and action. Blasphemy is a conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and action. So Jesus teaches a few things here, um, and the first one is positive. That there is forgiveness that is available for all sin. It says people will be forgiven for all sins and all sorts of blasphemy. And so he's using those words all in this sort of way. He's saying people are going to be forgiven for all sorts of sin. People are going to be forgiven for all sorts of blasphemy. That he's kind of tying this in. That there, no matter what your transgressions are, no matter the ways in which you have uh, proclaimed that you are higher than God, either through your actions um, or your omission of your actions, uh, no matter you have just violated uh, the, the, the will of God by uh, not loving God in the way that scripture commands you, or you are a outright rebel against God and seeking to undo the work of God in the world. He says, all of that, all of that has access to forgiveness. So I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Just forgiveness is available for all sorts of sins, but the implication is this, but forgiveness is only found in God through Jesus. There's no other pathway. And so Jesus' clear teaching here is that while forgiveness is able to be accessed through the Holy Spirit who points to who Jesus is and his provision for the forgiveness of sins, that if we are to deny the provision for our forgiveness that God has offered to us, then this is something that can't be made right. This quest to be made, making Jesus known is a quest to be making known the only way in our world to find forgiveness. The only way for our sins, right? Our sins, these, these actions, these thoughts, these deeds, these character flaws, any way in our actions, our thought, or our deeds that we don't reflect the perfect character of God, any way that we don't measure up to the mark of who God is, these deficits that keep us from God are sin. That there is forgiveness for sin to be found in Jesus. But if we walk away from Jesus, if we, re we reject him clearly presented by the Holy Spirit in power and in testimony through our hearts and in the word as the son of God, then there's no forgiveness to be found. That there's no forgiveness to be accessed. The eternal sin is the rejection of Jesus as Savior. This is the only thing that we can't be forgiven of because it is the thing that offers that forgiveness to us. So he's broken this story about um, his, his family opposing him in some way, and he's presented to us this picture then of this institutional forgiveness. He, he's made this strong statement um, in, in opposition to those accusations, and then we close out with uh, the, the end of that picture of his family. Verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him, and they called him. A crowd was sitting around and told him, look, your mothers and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
Looking at those sitting around the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus here draws what really is the clearest picture yet of a crucial truth about Christianity. Who are the people of God? That's the question Jesus seeks to answer. Who are the people of God? What does it mean to do the will of God? What does it mean to be a part of the family of God? And so he uses his, his literal physical family on earth as an illustration of this saying, look, who are my brothers and sisters? Who are those who are the ones who are my true family? And in the background is this fact that they don't recognize who Jesus is yet. I think some of them will come to recognize Jesus as Savior, and that will be a beautiful thing. But in this moment, they don't seem to see Jesus for who he is. They're not following him as disciples. And so he says, that's not my true family. Who are the people of God? Is it the religious Is it some sort of patriarchal or matriarchal hierarchy of birth? Is it churchgoers? Is it the moral? Is it the wise? Jesus says, no, those who are my family, those who are my brothers, my mothers, my sisters, those are who are doing the will of God. That is, who are aligning themselves with the mission of Jesus. Those who, like the disciples, are near him, are sent by him, are proclaiming who he was, who are pushing back the force of evil in the world. Those who are doing the will of God are those who are near to Christ. And that's why we're presented in this passage with a really binary decision. You have to decide where you stand on the issue of who Jesus is. You have to ask some of these questions of yourself um, Do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I trust that only through Christ forgiveness is found, only through his payment for my sin, through his right standing before God gifted to me? Am I embracing this new life found in the resurrection? Am I seeking to proclaim the good news of Jesus? Am I I pushing back the darkness and evil in the world, the forces of the devil through the authority of God to do good, to preach the gospel? Do I find comfort in the assurance of my status before God, locked in, secured by Jesus Christ? You have to ask yourself, Where do I stand before Jesus? Because Jesus presents it as two options, and he does it in a stark way. He says, my family are those who know who I am. They are near me. They're sent by me. They proclaim the truth about me. And they are against the evil in the world. He says, if you're not that, it doesn't matter if you're Jesus' literal physical family. It doesn't matter if you're in church every single weekend. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how much you pray, how many hours you read the Bible. He says the only thing that defines whether or not you are the people of God is if you have sought out Christ for forgiveness, if you have aligned yourself with him. One of the clearest pictures of the way we align ourselves with Jesus is in baptism. 
And so I just want to offer this to you uh, coming up uh, on Easter Sunday. We're going to offer you the opportunity. If you have never as an adult been baptized and you would like to be baptized, if you would like to publicly proclaim, I I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I am aligning myself with the mission and work of Jesus. Uh, He is my Savior to pay for my sin. He has given me new life. I mean, we would love to celebrate that and allow you to proclaim that uh, publicly uh, through baptism. And so if you want to do that, you can go to rivcitychurch.com slash baptism. You can sign up there. Um, love to have a conversation with you and get you on the schedule for that. Um, and this is only to push you to this question, this moment, that I would just encourage you um, in today, in this week, to really ask yourself those crucial questions. Of where do I stand with Christ? Is this the hope of my life? Or, or am I existing, living in unbelief? And I don't want you to measure that with whether or not you still struggle with sin because you will continue to struggle with sin and we'll see that clearly played out in Jesus' disciples and the rest of Mark. Um, I don't want you to measure that um, through like, well, man, if, if, I, if I say I haven't believed this and I want to believe this now, this might be embarrassing in some way. I, w- I want you to measure that by, is this my source of hope? Is this where I think that I find life? that Jesus is the Son of God. He and his death has made the payment for my sin and offered me forgiveness like only God himself could. That I have new life in the resurrection. I have a mission to proclaim who Jesus is and to push back against evil in the world and that I find my only comfort in life in the assurance and the righteousness offered to me in Jesus. We're gonna pray. And I just encourage you, even now, start asking yourself those questions. If you, if you believe and you have trust your heart that he gave you the gift of faith, if you're not sure where you're at, then man, I, I encourage you to ask God for help in that. To ask questions of the people that you know here. If you don't know anyone here, like, I love to talk to you. I love to connect you with somebody that, that you'd be comfortable talking to. Um, and I love to just encourage you um, to find the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer through his death and life. Let's pray together. Lord, it is only through you that we have the faith to believe in you. God, I pray that you would help us in our unbelief. God, help us with where we are prone to either try and make ourselves righteous and think that that's good enough, God, I pray that you would help us um, where we are prone to want to use this as a half in, half out. God, where our lives aren't fully aligned with you, where we don't uh, truly confess in any way that we follow you, um, but because we're scared of separation from you in hell, because we're scared of the consequence of our sin, um, we proclaim this in a half-hearted truth that we just haven't truly believed in yet. Come us into your family. And that, God, that there is no um, barrier of shame because you have covered over our shame. God, that there is no barrier of performance because you have performed all that is needed to be found righteous before you. And so, God, I just pray that you would continue to move here at River City Church, that you would move in Grand Rapids, in our state, in our country, in our world, that you would draw people near to you, that we would be sent by you as your disciples to proclaim the good news of Jesus who came to preach the repentance from sin, walking away from the things that harm us to the thing that can give us life and joy that we might find forgiveness and proclaim that the kingdom of God and Jesus has come near. Jesus, we pray this in your name.
Amen.